Hi everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Contact Centre podcast, where we'll be focusing on the topic of dealing with challenging customers in the call centre. I'm your host, Charlie Mitchell, and I'm the Features Editor here at Call Centre Helper Magazine, the world's leading online magazine dedicated to contact centres and customer service. Today's episode features a conversation between myself, Lee Jones, and Rob Clark, who are both from the new contact centre consultancy, Elevate Performance. At Elevate Performance, Lee and Rob work with contact centres to help cultivate a team climate where people can do their best work, shift and reframe how people think, feel and behave, and also bottle high performer skills so that they are easily replicated by others. While their consultancy is new, both Lee, who you'll hear speak first, and Rob have been working with contact centres for many years now and have lots of experience in helping advisors deal with those challenging customers. So let's now get on and listen to some of their great advice. What classic types of difficult customers do advisors need to be prepared for in the contact centre? Yeah, so it's an interesting question because I think the term difficult customers is interesting because everybody's different. So sometimes people can be perceived as difficult when really all they are is different to us or, you know, maybe have a concern. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're difficult. What I'd say is when a call center advisor picks up the phone, they never know what kind of personality they're going to get. So an advisor always needs to be prepared for that. You can't do a customer service job on autopilot. You have got to be present and ready for anything. It's, it's one of the toughest jobs in saying this for years, we're going to contact centers. And it's obviously a volume job. There's a lot of people in contact centers. It is such a hard job taking calls every day, you know, hundreds of calls a day. And so when you think about customers, they might fit your own style. Customer might fit your own kind of language and, and, and style of conversation, even if they are different to you. So they may still converse easily with you, even if actually they are different in their preference. And of course, they might not converse easily with you at all. And if you think about angry or annoyed customers, some, some customers display that in a threatening way and can be quite you know, elevated in their language and, and, and speak at volume. Some can be angry in a calm and placid way. So we tend to think about preference for the customer. You, you can't second guess it. What you can do, though, is try and work out essentially where their preference might sit. So there's you know, loads of psychometric assessment tools out there, which is all based on Carl Jung's theory that we're all born with a preference. Um, MBTI is the most kind of common or well-known sort of science for this that translates into loads of simple little models that people use. And and we've got a a similar model that, that we use. Essentially, we say that people have a preference in sort of four categories. So either you have a preference to sort of gravitate towards people and create harmony, so you tend to say that they're people, people. People could be sort of direct and efficient. That tends to be a quite unique characteristic. And then you've got people that tend to publicize their sort of personality and can be quite outgoing. And then fourthly, you get more analytical and introverted logical thinking people. So with those kind of four differences in mind, essentially we should be ready for anything because every individual can be different. And they've obviously got the, the problem that they're dealing with in addition to that. So we should never sit anxious about whether a customer should be difficult. We should be ready for the, the customer and how they like to be dealt with. And the ability to influence and satisfy the customers is usually when you're able to spot those preferences through their language, 
and the way that they're acting and try and match this. So we know that matching body language is a thing. Well, matching someone's preference is a thing. So giving answers in a way that plays to that preference. For example, if they're quite short and direct in how they're speaking to you, then it would make sense to deliver that response succinctly and without the detail. And then you can always ask them whether they want the detail because that's starting to mirror and match their their style. And then, you know, actually asking questions is one of the best ways of taking control of a call. So if a customer is difficult, then ask questions to find out what's annoying them. People quite often talk about call control processes, but signposting what you're going to do for a customer and how long it's going to take and then fact-finding questions is actually what we think is one of the best ways of controlling a call. And so then in addition to how they are as an individual and how they might be dealing with their problem, there is the problem in itself. So the problem that they phoned you. And we don't know what that problem is until we take ourselves out of autopilot, listen to them and ask questions. And something that happens in contact centers quite a lot is we jump to a conclusion because we think we've heard that problem before. And I think when you do that, you tend to then drive escalations because you assuming you know the answer to the problem and we have to treat every problem like we've never heard it before because we have to ask good questions so i think it's not necessarily thinking about difficult customers it's ensuring that every call is treated individually that's really key lee because the question charlie that you've asked around classic types my perspective of the customer i'm dealing with is going to be different to yours it's going to be different to lee's mm. so if i have a preference for direct communication efficient communication transactional communication then i might not be threatened by somebody who takes that stance when i'm on a call with them whereas if i'm one of the kind of more more inclined to have the base conversation people kind of people people want to connect more i might see somebody that comes onto the call with a kind of bish, bash, bosh, we're coming you know, coming with a, an objective in hand and I want to get to the conclusion quickly, I might see that as aggressive. I might see that as threatening or angry. Whereas in fact, there is none of that emotion there driving that. It's just the communication preference at play. So I think it's hard to bucket customers into classic types because it's all a matter of perspective. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point as well as, as lots of interesting things like taking yourself out of autopilot mode and those four types of customer and kind of aligning your training program to make sure you cover all of those. It was very interesting, I thought. Yeah, so lots of great stuff there. But I think I might move now on to the next question, which is when an advisor is struggling to deal with a query, what advice would you give to them? It's a good question because I think, and I'm sure Rob will have a load of examples himself. We've both spent a lot of time in contact centers and you tend, when you listen to calls, you tend to hear people almost trying to race themselves out of the problem. So it escalates quickly and, and it's almost like you dig in the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. I think there's a couple of things. First of all, is you've got to find time to take space, to take a step back and go, this isn't working. So you can only do that when you stay present. You're staying present to the situation. You're thinking, this isn't going right. I've got to get myself the space to recover. And then I think it's about being honest. Customers love honesty. I think people see honesty as a, as a, as a threat to their capability. So sometimes you've got, to, you've got to admit it's not going right and say, right, okay, this isn't going the way I think you want it to go. I believe that I can answer this for you. Let's just go back and look at the thing, the problem that you brought me with. Maybe you've got to find a way of getting 10 second break. Maybe you've got to look back on your notes and reflect and try and remember what the customer was actually asking for, not where maybe you've ended up. 
And sometimes, because we're so script-driven in contact centers, we can tend to be driven by a process. And sometimes the answer isn't in that process. So many contact centers have to deal with, and agents have to deal with problems that sit outside of process and in that area of gray. And when you have created a, a climate of permission for an advisor, and not driven them to be scripted, can they truly think on their feet and think, what is the best thing for this customer and how can I get them the right outcome? We've done a lot of studies in contact centers. We tend to do a lot of studies on what drives an MPS 10 or an MPS 1, or maybe a CSAT 5 and a CSAT 1. So we tend to correlate low and high performing contact center calls. And when people get it right, it's not things like they've been personable and polite, you know, they said sorry, those things are just hygiene factors. It's the ability to make the person, the customer, feel like you've got this, right? So you, you can deal with this problem for them. So, I mean, if you just look at the call opening and go right back to the opening of a call, starting a call, uh, listening to a customer's problem, you know, hi, Lee, you're through to X company. Right, okay, I'm sorry. Can I take a postcode, please? Is not a way of showing that you're on their side and that you've got this. So it's the ability to kind of show acknowledgement of what they've said, show reassurance that you can solve it and the fact that you are going to own it. So, you know, something like, okay, Charlie, I can appreciate that must be causing you some trouble. My name's Lee. I can definitely take ownership of this for you. It's a problem that can be, we quite often see and we can often resolve no problem. So just to check and speaking to the account holder, just want to take your postcode and then I'll get it sorted for you. So that's saying exactly the same thing. It adds about 10 seconds to the call. But we've got research that shows that actually by taking control of the call in that way and demonstrating you're on their side, you can save between 30 and 60 seconds per call on average handling time. So you get a commercial benefit as well as getting a satisfied and loyal customer. And again, it's a call control technique that says, I'm going to lead this call. And if you answer a call by saying, I'm sorry, can I take your postcode, please? And you've just blurted out a problem that's emotive to you, guess what? You're going to annoy that person. So they're going to try and take control of that call. A really good example, Lee, of the kind of the behavior and capability angle. I think the other, the other thing for us that's really important is the mindset. So when we're talking about personal change and we're doing any work with any organization, contact center, otherwise, we talk about the importance of having the right mindset and we start our change methodology, which is called ACT, starts with awareness. So that awareness isn't just about having the in the moment situational awareness around what you're hearing, you know, what, what the customer's saying to you, because there's a skill component to that. It's also having an awareness around how you're showing up, your state how you're responding and reacting and actually sort of centering yourself when you're in those conversations. Because let's face it, post-COVID, contact centers are getting hammered by frustrated, irate, pent-up energy from people that haven't managed to get past the AI and the automated responses. They're now getting funneled into the contact centers who are returning from furlough. Let's not forget that. Those human beings in those contact centers have their own stuff that they need to also navigate. So that awareness is really critical as well to kind of fuel the, the skill set. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really nice point around kind of action starts around awareness. And there's lots of interesting things that I picked up on from you, Lee, as well, in terms of kind of hygiene factors may not be as important as how you're making somebody feel. And those control, cool control techniques were very interesting. And I found the, your kind of point around that 
that contact centers are often driven by process, but now maybe we've got so much self-service and automation in place, it's not simple enough to do that anymore. And we're getting lots and lots of more calls which can't be scripted. So I think that point is gaining more and more relevance as time's going on, perhaps. I think there's one other thing on that, Charlie, which is compliance. So in a fear of being non-compliant, quite often contact centers take that and say, ask for postcode straight away. Because if you ask for postcode straight away, you're never going to breach DPA. Now, actually, you can still do all of those things I said and be compliant. It's just that it's that fear of not being compliant. So managers need to help agents be human and compliant. And we, we worked with a one of the top telecoms companies in the UK and their advisors on the answer of every call say, can I take your postcode, please? And they even do it on outbound calls. They say, hi, it's Lee from X. Can I take your postcode, please? Guess what's met with? Uh, sorry, who are you? Why are you phoning me? And why should I give you my postcode? So again, guess what the next minute is spent doing? Untangling the compliance problem. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. I think compliance, is, as you said, has led to um, lots of adherence-based call centers instead of contact centers that are, worked, that are focused more on employee empowerment and more so kind of network judgment of everybody kind of chipping in to help each other, which uh, is probably more powerful for a culture, definitely in terms of difficult customers, I feel. And I think that's a very uh, interesting angle that takes me on to my next question of what more advice do you and suggestions you have for dealing with difficult customers? I suppose to build on what I've said before, and it's quite a short point, and then I'll, I'll kind of see what other views Rob's got. But I mean, we talked about a few a few skills that show up in the first 10 seconds. And there are a number of skills that we see are very relevant to driving good customer outcomes and, and stopping people from being difficult customers. And we do see a correlation of that across sector and across contact centers. And sometimes you know that, that can be particular to an industry. But just going back on the point of saying just a minute ago that you can influence and match someone, you know, we know that you can influence people by mirroring and mimicking body language. You can do exactly the same with tone and volume. So if a customer's talking really loudly at you and animated, the last thing you should do is give a really timid, quiet reply, because it almost says, hang on a minute, this is important for me. And it's, you're not meeting me with that same level of importance. So I think it's really important to give them the attention they deserve. And that there's a, a piece of neuroscience that suggests that if you match someone's pace, tone and volume, and then you carefully bring your volume down as you're talking to somewhere a bit more comfortable, and you've got to do it subtly, you can't just you know, start talking loudly and get really quiet, then actually what you can do is you can bring them on the journey and you can control them, you can influence them to follow your tone so that then when they speak again, they are doing so more on your level. Can't do, you know, it takes a bit of practice, it's a skill, you know, we call it kind of intensity reduction, but it works. Hi everyone, it's me again. I just want to share with you a quick message from those of us here at Call Centre Helper. It's great that so many of you are listening to our podcasts, and if you want even more great content to help you run the best possible contact centre, make sure you pay a visit to our website, www.callcenterhelper.com. We have everything from in-depth articles, reports, and industry-leading webinars to important call centre tools like an Erlang calculator for you to enjoy. I will leave a few interesting links in the description box below so you can check out some of this really helpful material. But for now, let's just get back to my conversation with Lee and Rob. 
Then the other thing, just to build on that, so intensity reduction is almost kind of a behavioral change people can make to influence the behavior of others. But, you know, wider than just the individual contact center handler's ability to manage the situation, there needs to be skin in the game from the contact center leadership team. One of the, the critical skills, if you think about all the thought leadership around um, delighting customers and net promoter score research, et cetera, is actually just the customers called you for a reason. So generally speaking, 99 times out of 100, they're not calling for just a chat. There is a reason they're there in understanding essentially what, what good looks like for them and owning it, having the permission to resolve the query satisfactorily. That is a critical thing. And it seems really obvious. It seems like, well, surely that's just that's an obvious thing. But how many times do you encounter a contact center agent that goes, I can't do that. I need to escalate that. You know, I'm unable to do that for whatever reason. So the deviating from scripting is one thing that gives you the ability to kind of modify your behavior and your language to get a better conversation flowing. But you can have a great conversation if ultimately you can't resolve the issue or there's no way that you can progress that further, then you're not going to have a satisfied customer. That is a great point because it, everything you're saying there, I can't do that, sorry, all I can do is, as opposed to what I can do is, just basically says I'm not the person you need to speak to. So when you talk about escalations to managers, the moment I hear all I can do is makes me think, well, I want someone that can do. So it's about positively framing what's in your control. Yeah, What I can do for you is, and when I've done that, I'm going to pass you to one of our highly skilled engineers that will be able to do the next bit for you. Exactly. Oh, hang on a minute. As opposed to, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I can't do that. What I'm going to have to do is pass it over to our engineers and sometimes they don't answer the phone. It's being safe, safe, isn't it? I think the, the other thing is just situationally is the world that we live in right now, I made the point earlier that during COVID peak, we were all being forced, whether we liked it or not, we were being forced down a route that we wouldn't necessarily choose. So AI, self-serve platforms, the amount of times I, I as a customer have had a situation where simply you, you put something into the system and it goes, contact the contact center. So you get thrown out of channel A into channel B. You go to channel B and channel B is closed. Yeah. So I'm holding that. Six weeks or three months later, whenever it is, when I'm, I'm getting through to channel B and I'm talking to a human being, there is a festering feeling of negativity that I'm bringing to that call because I, I either haven't had a refund or, I mean, you know, the travel firms are getting absolute pasting right now because of the way that they're behaving around these sort of things. So it's, it reinforces the point that resolving the issue and making me feel safe again as a consumer, that I'm safe in your hands and I will be looked after is critical. Yeah, I think it's really important as kind of you say they're taking the ownership and matching that with Lee's point of kind of reframing the conversation, I think is a very important point. And I really like the idea of kind of intensity reduction as well, as you said. And I think we've also talked previously about kind of signposting and other cool control techniques like that. So I think lots of really great ideas there. But now kind of more in terms of what the contact centre can do instead of just the advisors, how else can yeah. contact centres better prepare advisors for uh, conversations with difficult customers? So I think the point Rob was just making is really valid here. Yeah. So I've worked in contact centres. I've, I've worked in contact centres for years and years and years. And just like Rob, we, we know how they operate. And they are quite often seen as a, as a cost centre, not a profit centre. So they are managed as a cost to the business. And that's, that's not right because service drives loyalty 
and retains customers, which stops you having a cost of sale. So businesses that get service right have a lower cost elsewhere in the business and actually can generate revenue through that cost base and leverage that asset. So if you think about building process, and I've sat in a contact center and I've been in project meetings where we were scripting IVRs and the objective was to make it as difficult as possible for the customer to find the contact center because it's cost. And IVR sits there as a low cost. Now, the problem with that, to Rob's point, is that you annoy people. And the moment you annoy people, the agent has two minutes of untangling annoyance before they deal with it. So you're only transferring the cost. And what you're actually doing is deferring loyalty before that. So personally, if an organization makes it hard for me to speak to them, that takes my loyalty down and I think elsewhere. So, you know, Richard Branson got it massively right when he said that we disrupt the market by providing businesses that can compete because they do service better. That was his ethos in the 90s. That still stacks up. So if you're trying to go too digital too fast or you're trying to put tech for the customer that wants face-to-face, then you're going to get it wrong. Put tech where tech is needed. Take transactional out, but never make it hard for people to bounce to Rob's point from channel A to channel B. And otherwise, you, you are simply deferring your costs somewhere else. I think that also, think- that, for me, that, that kind of aligns as well. I've always had this, made this point when we've worked with um, clients. And it's quite, it's quite a high challenge point, which is just how badly do you want to be customer-centric? Mm. Because I think that you know, contact centers can be and are a cost. Lee's made some valid, valid points around um, how you kind of flip that around. But um, you know, a lot of people in customer experience roles, you have to challenge sometimes the degree to which they want to be customer-centric. And we've worked with clients where it feels like there is a, a genuine desire to transform and, and align to customer and clients where maybe it's it's more about ticking a box somewhere. I think if you look at best in class, you know, likes of Amazon, for example, for example, Amazon will recommend a suggested contact channel, but they don't force you down that route. So Lee earlier mentioned how IVR can be used to kind of force you away from contact center into self-help or into FAQs. You know, Amazon, you find the contact and it says we recommend use web chat, however. And you have all the other options and they're all available. So I'm not being forced down a route that I don't want to go down. But there is, a, there is an anchor there to what works best for Amazon. Mm. So I think that kind of question around how badly do you want it should also be asked because you can really do some radical stuff like you know, throw scripting out the window, you know, empower people to actually have human conversations. How are you targeting people? I think if you're refocusing contact center metrics away from the typical and you look more at things like, customer metrics and also rework reduction and things like that if you if you sort of shift the focus a little bit you may discover that actually you're not as cost efficient as you could be because you're focused on the wrong things yeah and yeah again sorry there's lots of really interesting points there I like your um, idea of kind of not forcing customers down certain route lee your suggestion of certain companies hiding their contact information on their site i think is a particularly interesting one i like the idea of putting tech where it's needed as well and possibly lowering script adherence and maybe adding some advisor support systems to better help them. I think they're Can all really one more great point, ideas. Charlie? Yeah, go for it. Because um, I think it, in the, the answers we've given are all very much process-related, and I think there's a, a massive bit that we should make sure that we talk about, which is the climate that's created for the advisor, because an advisor doesn't just sit there on their own in that job. You know, The structure of the contact centre and how that contact centre leadership and management team behave is crucial. So really quickly on it, the organizations that get this right 
have team leaders that can create an environment of trust and permission. So Amazon get this right. They don't necessarily get everything right, but they definitely get this right in their contact centers. So an organization, an agent where they feel praised and valued, and one where they're also challenged in the right way and can be developed is one that's important. And it's really important that that manager can translate policy change, business change in a way that doesn't go, yeah, it's rubbish, isn't it? And throws it down the line. It's one that takes people on a journey and gives the rationale and reason for change because that helps with a person how they feel about the organization. And then I suppose final point in that is a manager that sits behind a PC screen and in meetings for 30 hours a week, they truly get the team they deserve. Whereas a manager that spends time with their team makes them feel part of the business, makes them feel safe and wanting to work hard with their manager, that manager then coaches their people observes them, know what good looks like and helps to drive performance, I think you can often see those managers in the contact center and you can see the performance of their people looks different to those in the rest of the center. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting point in the fact that also when a customer has had a difficult conversation, the ability of a leader to kind of support them through that and ensure it's kind of a learning experience instead of something that kind of they're fearful again of happening in the future, I think is a very interesting point. And lots of those ideas, especially kind of around involving advisors in change management and getting their feedback on lots of things is a very important point. And it kind of leads me on well to my next question of how advisors are allowed to deal with things. And this question is, how should advisors deal with a customer who says, I'd like to speak to a manager, please? Yeah, so that's obviously a lot of what we talked about is about avoiding that. Um, If an advisor demonstrates a lot of things that myself and Rob have been talking, then we do see manager escalations go down hugely. So we we measure that as a lot uh, within a lot of our programs. I think usually if if they want to escalate, it's because you can't answer the query or you didn't demonstrate the right behavior or language that says you can, or they're annoyed with you for making you feel like you couldn't answer the query. So it's something more behavioral. If it's that you can't answer the query, then sometimes you just have to accept that you might need to hand it over. Quite often, though, if you can't hand, answer it, then someone else can. Sometimes, actually, they just it might just help that you need to hand it off. So if you have got to escalate it, then I think you know it's about saying something that sounds a bit like, I hear that I haven't been able to do what's needed for you today. I apologize for that. And I apologize that you feel you need to speak to a manager so that I can ensure you get the answer you need. Can I just play back for clarity exactly what it is that you're asking for and how it can get resolved? Now, there's two things. It can help to demonstrate that actually you are listening. And if you have got it right, then you're going to hand over correctly to your manager and you're going to set them up for success. Actually, playing something back to get your own clarity does, does a number of things. It says, I've been listening to you. And if they go, no, 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 that's not what it was, then you have chance to maybe start again. So it's important to make sure it is an escalation. If it is going to be an escalation, then hand it over. If you've got to a point where clearly, you know, it hasn't worked, you've annoyed them or you haven't maybe been the best version of yourself and it's more of a behavior or a conflict in the conversation and you felt like you could answer it, then I think you need to, first of all, don't show contempt. Show contempt, it's going to annoy the customer. So therefore demonstrate a sense of humility. So you know, something you could say something like, okay, I clearly haven't given you what you need today, but I can assure you that I am the person that can solve the query. So based on that, would you allow me to replay the problem again? So I'll, I'll play it back to you and let me check that I've got it right. And then just give me the chance to see if I can resolve it again for you. And what that's showing is that showing you're human. And quite often people will give you a chance if you're honest. 
if you show contempt or try and dig your way out of it by kind of faffing your way through it or making stuff up, then I think you'll annoy the customer. So and sometimes you just have to accept you do need to hand over. I think Lee it makes a killer, a killer point there. And I think actually it really also loops back around some of the things you said earlier. So, you know, cool triage is really important practice within a contact center. And I think escalation should be one of the things you focus on. So you know, typically you might look at in a retention team, for example, if, if you've lost a client, why? But is an escalation call triage something you should consider doing? Absolutely. Because I think you can then break it down into component points and it plays back to the, for example, if it's just simply that in my role, I do not have the tools, the permission, the accessibility, whatever it might be to resolve that. It's physically impossible for me to do it. That's something for contact center management to kind of put in a bucket and discuss strategically, mm. you know, because if that becomes thematic, then, then there's a strategic decision to be made around that. If it's that there's something that I've done behaviorally, which has inflamed the customer, there's a development opportunity for me. And I think it's, it's important to separate those two things because it will fuel that self-awareness we talked about earlier and also reinforce kind of behavioral improvement. Yeah, yeah, I really like that idea of kind of listening back to calls where you know that a customer has requested that and then uh, spotting development opportunities and areas for improvement within the kind of contact center uh, itself, maybe in the training process or kind of a technology perspective. Lee, I really liked your ideas of showing the humility, but before you get to that stage, kind of acknowledging the customer's problem and just demonstrating that you've been listening to them, I think is a very interesting point. And then kind of just from a, for a final uh, question now, I think a really interesting question to ask to help contact centers maybe uh, bolster their coaching programs when it comes to dealing with the uh, difficult customers is what kind of training activities can you run through to help advisors deal with difficult customers? Okay, so I think with regards to training, I think people can often fall foul of the mistake is that you built the training because that's what you did last time, or we've got a module and it's off the shelf, or you know, I'll pull out that thing because it worked last time. Before any training intervention, you've got to have a look at people need to go on a journey and People need to, we've got something called the ACT model, Rob referred to it earlier. And it's about, first of all, you've got to make people aware of the need to change. You've then got to get people to choose that they're going to change, and then you actually transform. So with that in mind, it's not just about delivering training. If we look at the awareness stage, that's about recognizing, well, what needs to change? Why change it? Where are the triggers for that change? And being really specific. And quite often that won't work if you put that stuff in a training room. That stuff has to come before so that people have almost got the awareness before they get into the room. And actually, they've made a conscious choice that they do need to change because if they haven't, they're sat there going, yeah, this is just two hours off of course and those difficult customers. So that's important stage. The choice stage is, is getting them to visualize the benefit to them so they know what's in it for them, being accountable and being able to know what they need to tweak their own routine being able to see the barriers that they need to overcome and having an environment stress tested. And quite often that, again, needs to come before training. So that's why we talk about the need for pre-work or manager briefings before training. And then when people do walk in the training room, then you can start to develop their behavior and their skills. And before we look at the kind of things that, that can go in the training room itself, if you don't then make that change stick by transforming it back on the workplace... And there are ways of doing that, then it's not going to work. So chunk the change down into small bite-sized pieces. So you're progressing through that change 
at a better pace, making sure that you overcome setbacks and reward people for the fact that they've changed. And then they'll be able to progress onto the next skill that you want them to change. So, so the whole journey has to be thought about. And then when you talk about the activities that you can put into training, so what are the actual things we should train? I think it's, it's similar to, to our belief around coaching. First of all, you have to explain what it is that you're trying to change. So you've got to explain the change or give the knowledge transfer. You've then got to show it. So explain it, then demonstrate it. And a trainer, a facilitator, a coach has to be able to know what good looks like and, and show them. And then finally, you only get change when you practice. So like we said before, when you go into that transform stage and you're back out on the, in the workplace, you've got to be practicing it. Sometimes you'll get it wrong and you've got to have another go and you'll get setbacks. And so that, that's the role of the coach. So yes, things like role play and things like that are important because that's the first stage of practicing. So I don't know, Rob, if you'd add anything there. No, I, I think um, very comprehensively covered, Lee. I think it all links back to some of the points made earlier. I mean, how badly do you want your contact centre to be high-performing? Lee referred to kind of setting that up for success, so creating a climate where people want to do their best work is critical. But that's, that's not a small thing. That requires skin in the game from senior leaders, key stakeholders, and it takes effort. Shifting, reframing how people think, feel, and behave, that's where you obviously bring the training, the kind of the, the, the mindset training in. The skill piece, I think, again, there's still a, a bit of a, a disconnect across contact centres where you have pure people leaders, you have performance leaders, you have a hybrid of both, potentially. And I know that we haven't landed on a consistent model across all of industry, but we are saying that you need to have clarity on what good looks like in order to, to skills coach and therefore skills upskill people. That's all for this episode of the Contact Centre podcast. Thank you to Lee Jones and Rob Clark for taking the time to talk to me. We're looking forward to bringing you lots more interesting conversations over the coming months with even more great industry experts. But for now, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast and we'll be back soon. The Contact Centre podcast is produced by Call Centre Helper, the leading contact centre magazine. You can subscribe to our podcasts or give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also access our entire range of podcasts through the Call Centre Helper website by visiting callcenterhelper.com forward slash podcasts.